just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second pick overall, and he took Kyle Tucker? I'll ask Todd Zola about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 20th. It's show number two of the 2024 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have a great Two Tout Tuesday edition for you. We'll start with a feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. We'll discuss why he took Kyle Tucker second overall in a recent draft. We'll talk about the effects on pitchers when they change divisions. I'll ask him whether hitter K rates are projectable, and he'll have his boons and banes. Then in our second expert interview, Brant Chesser and I will talk about how he analyzes the players in his Arsenal report and facts and flukes coverage at BaseballHQ.com. It's our first big two-tout Tuesday edition of 2024. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We got Todd Zola. We got Brant Chesser. We got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Two Tout Tuesday edition, it's our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Means the season's getting closer, PD. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're sneaking up on it, or it's sneaking up on us. I'm not quite sure which, but uh, it is definitely draft season. I started in my Earth League draft called the Surf League, Canada A. a spelt E H, uh, fantasy, whatever it is. And, uh, you're in the Nerf league, New England rotisserie. Is it foundation? They call it or, uh, I fantasy foundation. I think, I think back in the day, Lar wanted to make it barf in the Bay area rotisserie. So they just figured right. out, figured out the F word, if you will. Yeah, and I don't know. I I don't. I never remember what the F word is. In this, well, knowing Lar, no. Anyway, how many drafts have you played so far besides Nerf? Let's see. Not not as many. Um, our friend and colleague Perry Van Hook runs a couple of leagues. I've done those, and I've done the Arizona Fall League Speakers League that Greg Ambrosius puts together. uh, A group of speakers at the uh, at the first pitch. So I've done that. I think that's it. Well, XFL auction, but I think that's it. I'm going to start the uh, the Roto Junkies Staff League or User League uh, this week, and then in March I'll start my own, you know, my own personal drafts. I don't do nearly as much drafting as I used to, but I will I will jump in and and and, and do my own. So, how many so far? I guess I I think it's I think it's four, including including Nerf, two of Perry's. Nerf, and then the first pitch, Arizona. 
and that's quite a while ago. So uh, maybe let's focus on the more recent ones between your own drafting and, of course, you're sitting on top of a lot of information and following along, I'm sure, as many of us are. What have you noticed so far in your own drafts and in other drafts that maybe stands a little bit out from what you're expecting? I think that in this, I'm not alone in this, and I, I've seen people talk about it. It's a wild, wild world out there. They're, you know, all right, I'll take Ronald Acuna. After that, it could be anything. And I'm, you know, from two to 450, whatever it might be, 750 in the draft and holds. I don't think, you know, there's not a right or wrong pick, not that there ever is. But I think it's more wide open this year than it's ever been. And the other thing that, that I'm noticing, there are, maybe there's always this way, but I think there's some distinct drop-offs in certain positions. Some people will refer this to scarcity. Um, you know, depend. There's, there's no definition of scarcity. It's whatever you want to define it as. And the drop-off between tiers is is one. And I'm finding, you know, third base, for instance, shortstop, that there are certain uh, steep plateaus or drop-offs that there's going to be a player later. But if you don't get one in the first few tiers, you're waiting a while. Yeah, I've read a lot about that as well and heard a lot about it on the many podcasts that are already out there. And doesn't it strike you that it was ever thus? It, like every year there's tiers of players and sometimes the tiers are far apart and sometimes the tiers aren't far apart. And it's all, some year it's second base, the next year it's, you know, third base or, or whatever the case might be. It just seems that I've been drafting an awful long time and it just seems every year is kind of like this, except that the, the names change. Yeah, but I think the main difference is with with uh, X and social media and just so much talking about our own and other drafts, it's it's more of a – it's not a private, my own research element. It's now stuff people talk and write about. So I think it's just out there a little bit more. And you're no longer gaining an edge by doing that extra work and looking at tiers and figuring out where the, the drops are. It's someone's writing about it. So I think that's, I think that's the main difference, but you're right. It's always been that way. I agree that it seems like there's more of a hive mind kind of approach yeah. to how these things get drafted, especially I think since the advent of the NFBC and the, and the tremendous amount of publicity that it generates because of the big prizes and so forth, that the, uh, the, uh, NFBC ADPs in particular start to become something of a Bible and it's a lot of people draft out off the ADPs, not necessarily following them, but looking at the ADPs for opportunities where you think you can uh, derive an advantage off your, off your opponents. For instance, just one example that pops into my mind, I think Paul Goldschmidt had an ADP that was a little lower or a little farther into the draft than I thought was ref reflective of his actual value as a player. And so I might look at Paul Goldschmidt and think, well, he's going in the sixth round according to ADP. I think he's a fourth round player. I'll split the difference and see if I can target him in the fifth round and make a profit on a good player and not pay full price. Y you know, and I, I wonder if that's going on more and more or if the entire ADP thing becomes self-referential in a certain point and, and uh, starts to become not just the tail wagging the dog, but the dog wagging the tail kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it's getting to eat itself. Now, the, you, now it, the NFBC made a brilliant marketing maneuver by making them public and talking about them and getting us to talk about them. 
the thing we got to keep in mind is these are ADPs for approximately, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people, two or three or four specific draft types. And they're, they're smart to market them as the ADP. But there are millions of people playing this game in thousands of different formats. And to really use the ADPs to your advantage, you have to understand the, uh, the NFBC mentality. And all it takes is one person in each room to think you need Ellie De La Cruz to be the MVP to win, and his ADP's pushed up. You know, Paul Goldschmidt is old and boring, and the NFBC doesn't like old and boring. So his so you have you have if you if you're talking about the NFBC ADP, you're not do you're doing a disservice if you don't do it in context of the NFBC leagues. And I think you're right. I mean, you need to you can find the Goldschmidts. Um, you can find some other older, boring players. I think there's a lot of pitchers. The NFBC loves strikeouts. I think Logan Webb is unduly punished by NFBC drafters. He's way down the list. Uh, he's still a starting SP1, but I think he's a top five st starter. But because he doesn't strike out every other batter, he falls in drafts. Yeah, and it does seem like the NFBC ADPs have become the de facto standard for all drafting, as you said, even yeah. though a lot of what goes on out there isn't ADP related because the rules are different. I mean, there's lots of examples of that. The one that pops into my mind, of course, right away is Tout Wars, which is on base percentage instead of batting average. And that makes a pretty big difference in the scheme of things. And there are other rules uh, that maybe we'll touch on a little later on uh, about Tout that separate it from the a the ADP situation at the NFBC. And as you said, the NFBC player pool, the, the manager pool, is a very small subset of everybody who's playing the game. I say this and people, huh? For every high stakes player, there are a thousand people who don't know how to spell NFBC. You know, there's like 35 million that play I don't know how many are high stakes. I'm going to guess in the thousands. So it's just huge. And the other, we talk about formats. We talked about this. The number one format. Now that may it may not be the cross section of people listening to us or subscribing to HQ, but the number one format out there is ten team head to head points. Right, I've heard that. And it would just be like, wow, that's like seventy five percent. Every other year, I I check with my my colleagues at ESPN and I call CBS and Yahoo, and it hasn't changed. 75% of people play, maybe a little bit less, it's like 75% play head-to-head, -head, majority of which play points, which I think is fine because it gets people in, and then it's my job, it's your job, it's HQ's job, it's Masters Ball job and Rotowire's job to take them from 10-team points to 12-team mixed to 15-team mixed Roto and maybe to AL and NL, but you know, that's a dying breed, unfortunately. Yeah, it is, and... Uh increasingly nobody's playing auction either. I mean, that, that's really withering on the vine. Yeah. The people who play it are dedicated to playing it. I'll oh, yeah. say that, but they tend to be on the older end of the spectrum. Uh, the, the action is maybe not fast enough to suit a lot of people. I mean, daily yeah. fantasy is certainly fast enough to suit a lot of people. <laughs> and it has claimed um, probably some portion of the full season rotisserie audience has just abandoned full season in favor of daily or shorter term types of leagues. And that's something else that we just have to live with. But 
in the meantime, I guess the take home message is in your own way, whatever your own way is, you have to figure out what the players are worth in the format that you're playing Mm -hmm. and then use the ADPs or use whatever other market intelligence you have to identify where those value pockets are, where guys are being drafted too soon, where guys are being drafted too late and take advantage of those kind of opportunities rather than just saying this guy's ADP, you know, 220. And if I get him at ADP 230, I've made a tremendous gain when you in fact may not have. I got research and I haven't, I to be fair, I haven't updated it for a couple of years. I last did it. Did I last do it during the pandemic? Cause I had the time. I think I last did it during the pandemic cause I had the time, but I've done it in the past and it's always the same. This is specifically in NFBC leagues cause I'm using NFBC ADP. So-called value picks turn out to be not such value picks over the whole. There are certain picks that then end up and though in reach picks more often than not work out. So it's just, this is one of those, the thing, I don't know if it's counterintuitive or not, but when I, you know, I kind of giggle, I'm in a draft and now you've got the guy at 130 and you know, his ADP is a hundred great pick. Uh, the, you know, probability says it ain't such a great pick. Yeah. And you know, you know, maybe the and, market and, knows something you don't. And, and, and this sort of research needs to be updated because, as we just talked about, you know, with, with with the flow of information, these these trends could change. So I I, I probably need to sit down and and uh, maybe I, I maybe I don't have access to main event data because I'm not in it, but I can probably do it with, with TGFBI data and rerun the study to see if reach picks versus air quote value picks if if it's still it's still the same and now you know I think this is the common the common sense part the picks that worked in both groups were most often done by people that finished in the top three there you uh, go is, you know is, is that you know is cause and effect though right right I mean, it may, you know so but even so uh, it's kind of like with streaming pitching in order to win your league you need to finish with an ERA better than you drafted but only like one or two or 15 teams does it. You need to do it in order to finish high, but it's really hard to do. Yeah, it is. And now that you've mentioned it, it seems like reaching should probably have better results than, uh, than scooping what you think are bargains. Because as I alluded to a second ago, if you're getting a guy after his ADP, it's because everybody else in your draft thought he wasn't worth what he was worth at, or wasn't worth the ADP. But if you're reaching to grab a guy and pull him in uh, around earlier than ADP, it's because you have a particular reason for wanting that guy that's based on your own analysis of of the of the context of the league, where you are in the league, but particularly of the player himself. And you just may be different than most people are, and that's oftentimes where leagues are won or lost. Right. And the other thing, and I, I kind of alluded to it, but as far as ADP, NFPC, ADP goes, I think, I mean, these are based on people who do multiple drafts, using multiple strategies, hedging their picks. I want I want L.A. De La Cruz early in this draft. Uh, I want a piece of him in case he explodes. There's always someone that has that feeling. I think if the ADP was based on everybody doing one draft, with the same stakes, I think Paul Goldschmidt would go a couple rounds earlier, and I think some of these hot shot rookies would go a round or two later because when you've got one draft and that's it, right. you're not taking these chances. 
Yeah, it reminds me of what Kimball Crossley said at First Pitch Arizona. If you're playing more than one league, you're playing it wrong because you're allowing yourself to spread your risk across all these different opportunities, which means you're really not figuring things out. You're just playing enough ways that you're going to you're bound to hit on one or two, if only just by the luck of the draw. Right, but if you're playing for profit, you're not doing it right if you're only playing one or two teams. Well, exactly. So it, yeah. it, it comes from your perspective. You know, Kimbo, I mean, I'm in, I mean, I like, I guess I have to now say I used to be in a league with Kimbo. He'll play an AL and an NL and maybe a mixed. And I wish I could do that. I think that would be perfect. I think that would be ideal. But, you know, this is our job and it's a laboratory. We need to play as many formats as possible to be to have our information be as applicable and cross cross section of as many because we just said it's it's not just you know we're we're appealing to everybody at least trying to in some cases so can't just play one league i wish i could you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with todd zola for masters ball rotowire espn and sirius xm fantasy sports radio and we've been talking about leagues you just drafted the nerf league the new england rotisserie F word, whatever, it, whatever it is. And, uh, from the two hole, I noticed that, that you took Kyle Tucker, which to some or a lot of people would seem like a bit of a reach talking of reaches. Yeah. Taking the, the fifth ADP player at the two hole. What a, what a, what a bad pick that is. You know, I mean, my number, you know, rankings are rankings, projections to projections, but you know, for the top 10 or so, I think that they mean something. And my numbers came out that Kyle Tucker is the, the, the number two batter. He was eight or nine last year, depending upon one's uh, value system, et cetera. Um, what if he hits second or third all year and is not hitting fourth or fifth and gets 20 or 30 more plate appearances? And the two most productive spots in the order are second and third. And when you got Jose Altuve before you and Jordan Alvarez after you, you're going to put – so I think there's an, I think there's enough – you know, narrative to warrant that pick. Some people think it's it's more it's, it's because of the safety. I think the safe thing is going chalk and taking Julio or or, or Bobby Witt. I think you know taking Kyle Tucker when you know you're going to get some flack. Not that I care about that. Is, is not is is the, is the not safe route. But position doesn't matter to me. Um, outfield isn't as deep, so I you know I, I'm getting some steals. Tucker was shortchanged a couple homers last year. Doesn't mean he's going to get him this year, but you know if he regressed towards expected, I think he hit thirty, and he numbers say he should have hit around air quote should have hit around thirty three. So you you plug that in, and I've got the number two player. Yeah, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's not like you took Alec Baum with the you know second pick in the draft <laughs> on a on a wild hunch. Uh, then you I noticed went. After after uh, Kyle Tucker as your opening pick, pitcher, position player, pitcher, hitter, pitcher, hitter, pitcher, hitter. Was that by design? Sort of. I wanted a pitcher and a hitter at each of them. I mean, I was batting, batting second. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever hit second in my life. Uh, I was picking second, and I wanted a pitcher and hitter at that at that pair of picks. So then it was a matter of, which to take first to get, you know, the better one at the second pick. And it just, I think it just turned out that it, that it went pitcher, hitter, pitcher, hitter, pitcher, hitter. Um, Gausman, my, my pitcher in the second round was sort of the last remaining 
pitcher of that tier. And the team, the first team took Acuna, and you often take a pitcher when you're at that wheel. So I needed to take Gausman then. And I felt like Guerrero, without Guerrero, would, would, would have a better chance of sliding. He probably would have slid even further. But as you mentioned, you know, you kind of talked about, I have him ranked. I think he's getting unduly penalized for an air quote off year. And I think he's worthy of that third round pick. I think he usually goes later in the third. But, you know, you took him ahead of the ADP. Well, man, the guy's numbers should have been a little bit better last year. And they were already pretty darn good. When I was drafting, uh, I was looking at these same kind of situations in the second and third round. And I had uh, a list of dollar values down one of my columns. And it all of a sudden dawned on me that when you get sort of even halfway through the second round, the in increments of difference in dollar values are very small over a very long period of players. And so if you like a player and he's a, looks like you're planning on taking him a little bit early by ADP or by value, there's not that much precision in the value, so you should just go right ahead and do what you think is best. What you describe is always the case. I, we've talked about it. I talk about it, the slinky effect. You grab a slinky, you drop it to the ground. Each rung is a, a player, and they're by the time you're at the bottom, they're on top of each other, unless you're really, really tall, and then the slinky's dangling. But the point being, um, I think your your observation, the the shrinking of the delta between players is earlier this year. Uh, so it just, and we talk about projections being inaccurate, you know, this just in valuation is flawed. So it's not like, even if we knew the projections, how we're valuing them is flawed. So you're taking, you know, uh, sketchy input into a, into a flawed system. So how can you trust the output to the second decimal place? You know, yeah, exactly. Anyway, you know, so, but, but, you know, I, some do, I try not to, but um, no, you're right. And and yeah, so, and this is what I was talking about earlier. It just makes it kind of a, a free for all a little earlier than it's been in years past it, that it's, that it's been in years past is that um, there's just a truncation early on. A lot of it has to do with the pitching in that pitching is more, more truncated than the bats. Uh, the bats are even the way that the MLB has extra off days Batters are getting more plate appearances than they did even a couple years ago when before they added the off days. So uh, there's just there are more batters available. Well, I don't know. You never want to project 700 plate appearances, but you could project a little higher plate appearances this year than you may have been able to do in the past. And I think that 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 brings the the, the pitching and the catching the pitching and the batting a little closer together, and you get what you talked about. So you said. Todd, that the machine or the mechanism by which the valuations are generated is fundamentally flawed. What did you mean? The one of the tenets of valuation is that you distribute the budget, and we'll talk, you know, we're talking auctions, 260 times 12 or times 15. That gets distributed over exactly the number of players to house a legal lineup. And you need to have enough catchers, enough pitchers, enough at every single position. And the assumption there is the presumption is every single player, that's the only player occupying that roster spot for 182 days, 162 games. That's just not the case, right? You know, there, be it in a daily league or platoons or injuries, 
other players occupy roster spots. So just because of that, you are it's 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 just not right. More players are contributing. These aren't the only players contributing to a league standings uh, to an act to the active points and the active uh, statistics in a league standing. So you know, right off the bat, that's flawed. Uh, most projection systems are based off of replacement. If you can't project the the players, how can you project the replacement? So you know, add that in, and you know, ratio stats with being batting average and then ERA and WHIP for for pitching. We've got proxies how to convert those into counting stats for the purpose of valuation. But there are flaws with that as well. So it's just, it's, it's why it, 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 to me, it's okay to, to look on a relative basis. I don't care that this guy's 27 and this guy's $25. I care that this guy comes out a little higher than this guy. I, you know, so I'm more, I, I look at the numbers as more of a relative than absolute basis. I've always looked at them the same as well. And I'm, being as I get older and wiser, I hope I'm getting a lot more forgiving of the difference between a you know twenty dollar and eighty eight cent player and a twenty dollar and thirty three cent player, and starting to think of them as fundamentally the same. And I understand that there still needs to be some method of of stack ranking them, but I think as long as you're doing it in kind of boxes or something like that, and what I've done as a middling or a a trial sort of method is I make a note of what picks I'm getting all the way through the draft. And then in each of those picks, I have a box that has 15 names in it. And my pick is in the middle of those names. And so if I'm lucky, I get a guy who's seven better than that. If I'm not so lucky, I'm in, I'm in a range that I can be comfortable drafting any of them so I can meet my positional requirements or, or other contextual needs at the same time. But getting back to the idea of the flawed nature of the uh, of the valuation systems, the other thing that always kind of bothered me was you need to have a one dollar player in the in that last position so that you have somebody off of whom you can scale everything else, and that makes sense to me. The problem I always had, Todd, was to set the lowest guy, you need to have a valuation system. And, and so you need the valuation system to set the guy, but you also need the guys to set the valuation system. And I could never square that. And then the other thing I thought of was different guys have different values assigned to them for the categories that they contribute to. And it it all, always seemed like we were valuing the players based on a system that maybe wasn't so trustworthy, but we all just kind of looked at each other and winked and said, yeah, but we'll trust it anyway. Right. Now, you, what you just described as far as, you know, kind of circular reasoning with replacement, it, depending upon your valuation process, it, 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 it kind of becomes, your pool can change depending upon your replacement, the, the composition of, well, I'm choosing these as my replacement players. Well, this position's got more homers and steals. It's got more steals and home. You, if you choose a slightly different replacement player, everything else, it just skews everything. So it, it's, it, it becomes like a, it's hard to program a static projection system 
because the replacement is transient. So that was when I, uh, Jesus, 2002 or three, whenever Jason Gray said, you're doing this or you're out. And that is come up with an Excel way to make projection, uh, make a value system. Um, Cause the one I had was iterations and I just had to keep going, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I didn't know how to program that. It was, I, you know, I find, all right, this is what I'm going to do. It's not perfect, but it does the job, you know, to come up with a static replacement and not have the replacement feed off of the pool. Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, the whole thing seems to depend on reiteration and that's yeah. what I did. That's what I decided as well. And after that, I just decided to let you guys do it and, <laughs> <laughs> and then just live with the results. And, and I think as you guys do, you and Ray and Ariel and all the people who build these projections, Jeff Erickson, I think at some point you just go, that doesn't look right. I'm moving it for certain players. I'm going to, I'm going to make an adjustment in that because it just doesn't jibe with what I, as somebody who has been following this sport for a very long time, think is going to happen. So I'm going to change it. What I do, I, you know, I'm sitting for myself. I don't know what anybody else does and I'm, people may do this. I don't think it's proprietary. There are certain skills and, and stats that involve regression and you, there's an expected number and then there's the actual number and i think you can make a case for anything in between so i'll uh, sometimes my regression is usually 0.5 and i'll and i'll change it and there's so many good forms of uh, or sources of expected numbers now hq has some proprietary ones as do i but Statcast is out there as are others so i feel any any regression between zero and a hundred I'm not. I'm not overriding. I'm just altering the regression. Maybe that's a rationalization. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's what I. When I need. When I. Oh, you're. You know. You're right. I will look at some numbers and I'll say, well, you know what? Uh, this guy. I know three years ago he couldn't hit a curve, but the last two years he can, and I'm still carrying some of that strikeout rate from three years ago in right, there. Right. Right. So I will. I will. Maybe my way of doing this softening that year. I. You don't want to take it out. But if you're a you know three two one Marcel's type of weighted average, you make it three and a half two one you know three and a half two half or whatever you where you might do right is you know so is that that's I'm not taking twenty homers and making a twenty two, I'm changing the weighted average. I'm making twenty two homers out of twenty, right. but I, you know I, the way I'm doing it you know so <laughs> but yeah absolutely I don't I think I think you can't in this is Ron's expression. You can't be married to the model. And I think it gets you there. And I, the problem I have, and I think Ray would say the same thing, we just don't have the time to look at 1,500 players and massage 1,500 players. We try to do the top 500 because those are the ones being drafted. And then we, we, we let our users point out something wacky with number 780, and then we go and adjust it. But there's, just not, there's not enough time to, to, to dig into everything and still get our content out especially now you mentioned NFPC, they started drafting in November, right? So you, yeah. you need to get stuff out as early as possible. It used to be, heck, when I would mention Masters Balls and Jason Gray, you know, we didn't get our stuff out till February 15th. I mean, right now we would be sitting down and looking through the projections to start to post them. I've already posted 20 updates, right? You know, so different times. Oh, definitely. And I think there may be a moral to the story to anybody who's not a projections manager or projections creator, but a projections consumer. And that is 
don't be afraid to look at something you think doesn't make sense to you and adjust it. Now, whether you call it an adjustment to the regression or adjustment to the actual outcomes is up to you, but it's not, these, these projections aren't carved in stone. First of all, they're all different. All really smart guys are putting together these projections and they're coming up with different answers. And uh, there's a, um, arguments over the amount of precision there is or can be. So if you think Luis Castillo is going to be a better pitcher than your projection system of choice says he's going to be, then by all means, push him up above Kevin Gosman, push him up above Spencer Strider if you want. You know, it's up to you. I mean, that's at, at the end of the day, when you're drafting your teams in fantasy baseball, they're your decisions. You can't just, like you said, you can't just be married to the model and follow along. I think especially I don't have time to do my own projections. Okay, I I don't blame you. There's better uses of your time. Read a book, go to a movie. But what you can do, (laughs) the, the differences of rate of production between different systems is far less than the difference of projected playing time. Right. If you... Take whatever you want. Take HQ. Take mine. Take take ATC. Take aerials because it's a combination of several systems, and then adjust it via how much you think the player is going to play. It's your own projection. So to me, I mean that's that's my you know whenever someone says I don't have time to do my own playing time, that's my suggestion is take say something you trust, and if you think the player is going to play more, jump them up. If you think he's going to play less, drop it. And that's now they're your own projections. And that can be especially helpful if you're in, in a major league city or you're a fan. And of course we all have access to much more information than we used to. But if you're going into draft and you happen to have heard, I mean, this is something you would do naturally. If you go into your draft, I I live here in the Toronto market for baseball and there's a lot of blue Jays stuff in our media because Mm of it. And so if I realize that, you know, oh, I, I heard this morning that Vladdy's got a sore thumb or something like that, it may encourage me to think of drafting somebody else in that spot because I'm a little worried about him starting the year slow and missing 30 plate appearances can be enough to knock you down half a round or something like that. So there is all that kind of stuff to think oh, about this as is, well. This is just an example, right? Did you really hear that? No, I didn't. In fact, okay, you. No, that, the, he was uh, my third rounder in, in Nerve. Yeah, well, I know I what you're saying. And, I mean, and the same thing, I mean, using your example, um, you may not – right now, we don't – I don't know where Kevin Biggio is going to get his at-bats. And I'm not taking him in a mixed league, but you're kind of tuned into Toronto, and you have a – he's going to be the guy – he's the Ty Wigginton. I'd like to use him as an example. We can only project 150 at-bats, but he's going to get 350. I don't know where. So you have a better – you know, you have a better feel in, in AL Labor or AL Tout Wars. Maybe, maybe he's a – end game target because you're more familiar with him than, than you might be with of the utility player on the Royals or something. No, that's exactly right. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Series XM, Fantasy Sports Radio. Uh, Todd, in the Z Files and at Rotowire, you wrote about the effects on pitchers from changing divisions. And you use the example of Corbin Burns, of course, who moves from the somewhat anemic National League Central to the red-blooded American League East as far as hitters that he has to face. So how did you set up this study? Okay, so what I did was, and 
you know, the caveat being divisions change every year. So this is more backwards looking than it is predictive. But when we when we we always neutralize or normalize projections based on park factor, why not normalize them based on quality of opponents? So that was kind of the overriding thinking. So I, you know, have access to some data that others may not, which is fine, and was able to compute the ERA and, you know, our ERA is, is, is a bad stat. Well, for an individual player. But when you're looking at a team in a division, I think it's pretty representative. The, the highs and lows balance out, and I think you can use it as a proxy. And since we're talking about quality of opponent, you know, the, the quality of the ERA you faced, I think, is representative. And for batting, uh, I use WOBA, weighted on base average. It uh, correlates very well with runs. I think not, the R-squared was 0.95. It's just a great proxy. So the quality of opponents that pitchers faced, I looked at the aggregate WOBA. So I calculated that per team over the past three years to see if there's any variance and then combine that per division and to just to try to find out if there were, you know, what divisions actually faced stronger batters and faced weaker batters. The catch is that I think the DH has been around long enough that that wasn't a problem, but the the bigger issue was the schedule change last year, so we uh, the I think we only have one year where the lesser that's right yeah. focus on the divisions, and you played every team in the other conference other other league if you will, um, and I think this may be a tiny bit surprising, but National League batters as an aggregate are better than American League batters now some of that is because they're facing American League pitching. And, you know, if the best hitter faces the best batter, they're both going to be average. And if the worst pitcher faces the worst batter, their numbers are going to be average. But, you know, which, you know, so there is, again, there is some circularity to this. But, you know, I thought it would still would be interesting to, to Gary carry through and see at least, what on you know, by the numbers – which divisions seemingly were faced not so much strong. I'm not looking at, at the divisions themselves, which are stronger, which I had to keep reminding myself as I'm writing it, which is why I needed to keep reminding the readers to keep, keep in mind the numbers you're seeing aren't the team's ERA and WOBA. It's what they faced. So is Corbin Burns better off or worse off with the move to Baltimore? Jumping ahead, read, subscribe and read the piece. Um, of course, this depends upon the delta of the park, but I think the, the bottom line conclusion was uh, quality opponent is probably not as much of a difference as we may perceive. There's a difference, but I think that, you know, off the cuff, I think we may, may think that the difference is greater than it actually is. Now, if the two parks were the same, the difference in division, and it turns out that uh, Burns faced would would have faced slightly lesser quality uh, batters, even in the AL, even the AL East, because the National League itself is stronger. Uh, he's he benefits both from the park change and the division change. He benefits more from the park change. Overall, I think he jumped to my number three pitcher. 
from number six or seven. I think he, you know, on paper, like we just talked about, all the caveats that we discussed in the first segment, uh, he jumped from like number three or four, five, well, four or five to the number three overall pitcher. And that's attributable to the change of team, Park and um, Park being yeah. most of it, but also quality of opposition hitter. Yeah, right. Uh, but okay, that presumes that the divisions are going to stay the, cha- the same. We don't know. We don't know that. And part of the study that I did showed there is variance from year to year to year, at least based on these numbers. And sure, we can we can wait until free agents sign, and and uh, and, and and we can literally, you know, we can project the the we using our projections. We can project the, the quality of uh, opponents, et cetera. We know the schedule. We can go through it. That's what Excel's for. Uh, but. Yeah, you know, we just talked about the inaccuracy of projections. You now want to take the next step and and rank divisions based upon our flawed projections. I don't know. Also at Rotowire in the Z files, we're always looking at hitters, and that usually starts with assessing their strikeout rates. And at Rotowire, you asked an important question on that front, namely, are K rates for hitters projectable? So how did you set up that study? I'm glad you phrased it that way, that I asked the question, are they projectable? And and not, how do you project them? Because based upon my results, uh, the first question's much, much better. Uh, basically, here, there's a slight problem, and I'm going to stop cursing the pandemic year soon. But to do a study of this nature, you need you know, a consecutive set of seasons to, you know, how did they do these two seasons you know, they, these numbers from two seasons, how did they project the third? Well, with 2020 not in the picture, we don't have that much data anymore. I don't have I don't have the, the length of data. And as much as we think, oh, there's a ton of batters that strike out all the time, the pool of players that strike out over, I don't know, 27% of the time, whenever you want to arbitrarily choose as your that's too much number, there's not that many that do it from year to year to year. Primarily because if they continue to strike out at that rate, they're no longer playing or they're getting so few at bats that the number, you know, you want to base it at 300 or 400 plate appearances. The the sample just kind of, you know, it, it, it polices itself. So, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting to here, the, you know, and, the, and, and what I wanted to do and the reason I started to do this, you do some boxes for HQ, you profile, you look at players. I found more players. It surprised me. Oh, this guy strikes out all the time. He must chase. Well, I want to. Re- I want to use his chase number in my profile. Wait, he doesn't chase. He doesn't chase at all. He just makes terrible contact at the few pitches on which he does chase. That's just. I. I, I kind of was caught off guard by the number of players that had that profile. So I, I took a page from the the bucket of batter versus pitcher where you don't look at an individual pitcher versus individual batter that you look at a batter versus a type of pitchers. So I lumped high strikeout batters into the different, you know, you got outside of the zone contact outside uh, swinging in inside of the zone swinging and inside of the zone contact. I kind of put them in quadrants to see if any of these players in a particular quadrant uh, as a group improved or didn't improve, because to me that's more relevant. But again, though, there just weren't enough players to put into those quadrants to have the data be trustable. You know, I'm gonna, 
this is my this is my you know because of this group of players that all chased a lot um they they you know they they turned out to do this uh, there weren't enough players you know it turned out that if, if you look at each of them individually they all improved their contact for a different reason so uh, this you know a lot of people would have just said darn it i just wasted my time with this all this research um because you phrased it you know can you project no is an answer yeah that's isn't true. it you know no is an answer if you have that question i do my readers do so if i tell them no i mean it's not as exciting as saying hey guys listen to me i'm going to tell you 10 batters are going to strike out less this year i didn't come up with that conclusion but no no one's out there wondering can you do that at least according to my research and i'll keep doing it once i get more and more data to look at um but that that was the conclusion is that um you just have to continue to do subjectively decide if this particular batter is going to you know improve his z contact or chase less or right. whatever it might be there's no pattern to follow you also expanded the study to a larger pool I guess to look into how broad strikeout rate, the big broad strikeout rate changes from one year to the next and you used rolling averages rather than just year totals. Uh, how did that work and what did you figure out? Right. I think rolling averages just kind of smooth out because there's, you know, there's, there's outlier within a set. So if you just go 30 to 27, 26 to 22, uh, but if, if the, if the outliers are included in a couple different of these of these data sets then it, it tends to smooth it out so that's that that's the reason it, it, it's not just rolling average i call it overlapping rolling averages uh and so i i did that and figured out how they do one year to the next here's another result that it, you know someone might go duh but again you know we we love to find non-intuitive results because it helps us but i think it no i think it helps to know when things go as expected, people that batters that struck out a lot as a group over time struck out less. Batters that struck out not very much, fan not very much over time, fan more. Basically, they all regress to the mean. And I have a buddy that used to, you know, work together. He'll he all he says everything regresses to the mean. You know, I like to try to find the things that maybe don't regress more or less, but everything regresses to me. Those that hit struck out about 22, 23, 24% around average stayed that way. Um, what does this mean? It means if you're in a dynasty league and you're worried about someone with a 33% strikeout rate, apologize for the sirens, uh, that, yeah, over time, that batter is going to fan less. And if you're paying in a dynasty league or keeper league because the batter is only striking out 14% of the time, by the end of his keeper or dynasty contract, he's probably going to be striking out more. So just, I think that's the bigger take home message. Uh, it, it strikeout rates regress as an aggregate regress to the mean. As an aggregate, but not on a player by player basis, because some players are just better at not striking yeah. out. No, yes, no, for sure. And again, you know, that then you need to, then maybe you dig into the, why isn't he striking out the quality of, you know, if he's not making hard contact at the, quality contacts down low, he's probably more likely to continue to put the bat on the ball, put it in play and, and use those legs, uh, et cetera. But, um, 
you know, it's, 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 it, to me, it wasn't as an exciting as a piece as I had hoped, but that's part of that. Maybe that's my research back. That's maybe that's my, my research background in that, um, you know, I mentioned Jason a couple times, Jason Gray, he always used, cause I always used, you know, I don't know if I want to post this piece and he would tell me all the time, you know, no is a result. Yeah, you don't always discover insulin every time you go into the lab. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, right. And I think, you know, no, I think we we both done enough studies that wow, that's cool, and that makes the process worthwhile. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a research thing for Baseball HQ, and when I proposed it to uh, Ed DeCaria, our head of research, um, he said that the question that we had to start with was, "Is there a correlation?" before we start to, to trying to determine <laughs> what the correlation is. Right. And it was, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting perspective to have, and I think it's a really necessary perspective to have. And we know that in the world of science, outside of baseball, I mean, in, in the real world of science, there's a lot of pressure on researchers to find interesting new things. And a lot of them, unfortunately, seem to be kind of skirting the edges of proper rigor in, in science in coming up with their results, or at least often enough to, you know, make the whole process seem a little sketchy, which is too bad for the 99% of people who are doing it right. I mean, especially with the statistics, right? Well, you know, damn lies or whatever the expression is. If you presume a result, you're going to find a way to spin the numbers to satisfy that result, to corroborate that result. Um, I think, I mean, I, you know, I may, again, because of my scientific background, if you do that, you know, you, that's not good. Cause you end up, you know, putting two chemicals together and blowing your lab up. So I, I learned that, uh, you know, you, not, not to do that, but I, I have, I've seen, you know, people can ask, people ask me to, to read, can you, can you read this for me? Sometimes it's for my writers of creative sports. Um, what do you think of this, this new statistic? And I said, you know, you wanted this to be this and i'm not so sure that it actually is this i can interpret the data a little differently and i'm not so sure so yeah i think we are there is it's a bias that we all have you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with todd zola from masters ball and rotowire espn and sirius xm and todd uh, i like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes looking at the coming draft season so let's start with a, a batter who looks like good value to you and could be a boon for his fantasy managers. Yeah, we're going to be, we may be doing this or something similar with Ray in a, in a few weeks once things uh, in, in kind of a round table. I'm, I'm glad Ray's not here because uh, the, the two guys, I mean, I, I wrote down, call me a homer, I don't care. I wrote down Vaughn Grissom and Jaron Duran. And I think this fits into our discussion earlier where I don't think we're being homers. I just think we're more in tune with some of the players that we hear and you know hear hear and talked about in our own hometowns, in our own papers and radio, etc. Uh, maybe more so Grissom because I think Duran you, you can easily make a case, especially now that he's going to be hitting leadoff. I just think I just think he's going to play second base. I think Dustin Pedroia is going to be tied to his hip in the spring, and I think he's going to take advantage of that wall and he's going to run. So I'm I got I got uh, Grissom in my Nerf draft that we talked about. And I have him ranked around 100 picks ahead of the air quote ADP. So he's my, he's my boon. How about a pitcher who could be a boon? Yeah, this is going to shock some people. Bailey Ober. Um, I got him in Nerf. 
all he does at every level is strike a lot of batters out and not walk many. His stuff isn't electric. You know, he's a tall guy, so people are worried about repeatability. But all he's ever done is put up a great K minus BB. Last year, the Twins thought so well of him, highly of him, that they decided to put him on the farm and have Dylas Keuchel be their starter down the stretch. I just don't get it. I think he's going to be in the rotation, and I'm willing to have him as my third starting pitcher. I'd like to get him as my fourth or fifth. Um, the room I was in yesterday for, for Nerf, they didn't know how to spell ADP, so I needed to take him as my third. Um, I, I think we're going to see good things out of Bailey Ober. Let's move over to your Baines. These are players likely to be drafted too early this weekend. Who's a batter who could be a Bane? Uh, you know, I'm going to go. I, I, to me, it's O'Neill Cruz. And it's not that I don't think O'Neill Cruz is going to be a wonderful player, but the guy missed a year. And the team contacts in the park, well, the park, the, it's actually a better runs park than, people, than PNC and the people give it credit for. But, I, I, you know, he, there's already some strikeout issues. There's some rust. I think people are, I mean, by the second half of the, the you know, the final three months, I think he's going to be fine. But I think people are drafting an Omar Cruz without considering the fact he may start out slow. And finally, who's a pitcher Bane? Oh, boy. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to go Yoshi Yamamoto. And every day I become less secure in this reasoning, but it's basically, well, part of, part of it is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as worried anymore because his, his ADP, this, as, as they say, he's got some helium. He's getting drafted higher and higher. I think people are drafting him as if he's going to start 30 or 32 games. Now, my reservation is we're not as concerned about 200 innings as we were previously, but where he's being drafted, Yamamoto, I am concerned. And it's clear the Dodgers are going to be using, I don't want to even call it a six-man rotation because they're going to have guys jump in and out of that all year long once they become healthy or get injured or et cetera. Uh, you know, they're, they're, their guys are going to start once a week. Now, Yamamoto may gain a start because of the Korea series, right? He may, it may be essentially an extra week for him. But even so, I think we're talking 26 or 27 starts. And even though I think he's going to be wonderful, the stuff grades out well, there are other pitchers I want in that range that to trust as my anchor. And, man, I'm willing to be wrong because I love watching baseball. and He's going to be fun to watch. But I think we're going to get 26 or 7 starts, not 30 or 32. Not everybody gets 32 anymore. But to me, you want 30 or 32 from the top. 10 pitchers, and he's within the top 10. Todd Zola's Boons, Vaughn Grissom of Boston, Bailey Ober of Minnesota, his Baines, O'Neill Cruz of Pittsburgh, Yoshi Yamamoto of the Dodgers. Todd, uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. They can keep up. Can I, I'll quickly add a new a new place this year because I'm Fantasy Index is uh, trying to relaunch their baseball content, and I'm they've asked me to sort of be the lead for that. And the reason I want to talk about it or mention it is I'm doing a free piece for Fantasy Index. It's been a while since I've been in front of the paywall and I'm getting the right about some of the stuff that I've been writing about for years uh, with, in, in, a, in a refreshed manner. So every weekend there's a new piece on Fantasy Index um, 
uh, as we try to reestablish that as a as a website. But uh, perfect timing to talk to you because uh, SiriusXM is allowing us to talk fantasy baseball again and starting this particular, well, not particular, this weekend I'll be back on Saturday and Sunday, Saturday with Eric Halterman, Sunday with Jeff Erickson from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. And actually I'm pinch hitting on Friday uh, a day early uh, for James Anderson on the Rotowire show. So we're back to that schedule at least through July 4th. And then I still am one of the sole survivors on X. Um, maybe I'll, I, I still, I still enjoy it. Call me crazy, but I'm still there. Um, so that's a, uh, and then, you know, whenever, whenever you're desperate for a guest, I'll, I'll talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Or whenever you're desperate for somebody <laughs> to talk to. Yeah. Um, have you tried any of the other alternative stacks or looked into them? Um, no, I, a couple of the places I work use Slack and discord, but that's not what you're talking about. That's no, the way no. to communicate with, um, I have not yet looked into i mean i'm on facebook but that's more to keep up with my family right. <laughs> than it yeah. is anything else i have not i haven't done insta i haven't done threads um i guess i'm still getting enough um contact you know en enough enough stuff on 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 x twitter to to satisfy that uh, urge i mean i i can't I, I don't know that i can afford any more distractions you know, yeah. my, 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 my attention lesson, attention is, uh, oh, look, there's a bird. Um, oh, I, I, we're talking to PD. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, you know. Squirrel. I, yeah, exactly. So uh, I already, I already have a, a tendency to get to, fortunately, now the windows are closed and not a lot of birds, you know, once the summer comes, yeah, I find myself distracted more and more and often for good reasons. Well, I signed up with Blue Sky Social. I'll send you a link okay. if you want to try okay. that. Okay. And uh, it's so far so good, anyway. But it's it's still relatively small, and they haven't had a chance to get the kooks and and provocateurs and things like that that make uh, X the kind of site that a lot of people don't like. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for doing this. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I think we've got you on just before the uh, or just after the first opening day, but just before the second opening day for a round table with you and Ray. Look forward to that and uh, look forward to just talking with you throughout the year. As well, PD, gonna, are, you being, are you going out of Florida? Uh, no. Oh, well, we'll miss you then. We'll see you in Tauto in New York. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears regularly at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. Coming up, we'll have our second expert interview on this Two Tout Tuesday edition with Baseball HQ analyst Brant Chesser. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Market Pulse, analyst Matthew Cedarholm looks at the market for first baseman. The Market Pulse is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com, and so is the Bullpen Buyer's Guide. Analyst Doug Dennis this week covers the bullpens in Kansas City, Philadelphia, the Cubs, the Angels, and Miami. And don't forget to tune in again on Friday when we have another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio featuring Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the ATC Projection Valuation Systems, and Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. In the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, including Ron Chandler, Scott Pianowski, Jeff Zimmerman, Jock Thompson, Peter Kreutzer, and Matt Beagle, plus all the usual great stuff 
our news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Ariel Cohen and Ryan Bloomfield this Friday, that's February 23rd, on another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our second feature expert interview of this Two Tout Tuesday edition with Brant Chesser, Arsenal Report and Facts and Flukes Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Brant, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor to join you on your award-winning Baseball HQ podcast. Let's start with your drafts. How many are you playing this year, and uh, how are your drafts going so far? Uh, they're going pretty well so far. I've finished five draft champions league on the NFBC, and then during the next few weeks, uh, start my NL-only CBS Experts League auction and then TGFBI team, which is a 15-team league, and then a Razzball team, which is a more points-based league. Yeah, I've played the Razzball. It's a best ball, kind of you don't have to do a whole lot of work except two or three times during the year. Isn't that the format? Yes. And how do you draft that any differently than you would just say a regular Draft Champions League or something else on the NFBC platform? Closers are definitely devalued in that format, um, in the cut line format. Um, you could try for elite starting pitchers, but it seems um, the obvious winning strategy is to go bat heavy bats early and like much deeper than draft champions. Like in the draft champions, recently I've been taking a closer in the fourth round or fifth round because you have no pickups, or at least with cut line you have pickups later. What common threads or common players have you noticed so far in your drafts? I like getting like a anchor starting pitcher, so like. Luis Castillo, Logan Webb, someone to give me 180 innings, somewhat, somewhat depth. And then I've been digging into the early closer pool, whether it's uh, Devin Williams or Camilo Duvall or even uh, Iglesias, someone like that in the fifth round. Huh, that's uh, interesting that you say that because uh, I know most of the time when I read about the sort of solid closers that Devin Williams is kind of up there in a class with just a couple of other guys, Edwin Diaz and so forth. And I don't hear Camilo Doval mentioned in that, or Razel Iglesias mentioned on that tier of closers. As far as you're concerned, are they pretty much all of one piece? Uh, no, but uh, just fallback options. So if I miss that cl closer tier in the third, fourth round, what they've been going, I'll, I'll nab Iglesias or Duvall like a round later. In your drafts, have you noticed your opponents doing anything out of the ordinary that you didn't expect? The last draft I was in, uh, someone, I guess, thinks Kenley Jansen is going to be traded from the Red Sox, which has been highly rumored because Chris Martin, their backup reliever, who's gone around pick 550 or 600 most drafts I've been in, went at pick 200 in the last draft. So once again, small sample, but I was surprised by that. I was thinking more like... The common wisdom this year has been we should expect to see starting pitchers going early, maybe even earlier than before. Have you noticed that that is indeed the case? For the most part, yes. Strider and Cole are your first two pitchers off the board in most drafts I've been in. And then Burns, since the trade, seems like he's been moving up to the one-two turn with Baltimore. And then the, the second-round pitchers are still Wheeler, and Castillo, it seems like, pretty set there. How about Kevin Gosman? He's he's right there as well, yeah. And so when you go into that situation, 
were you expecting to draft a starter in that sort of second round, early third round window? I prefer to go power speed bats and that like everyone else <laughs> in the first two rounds yeah. and get, get my base for power and speed, whatever that looks like. But obviously it depends on what pick I end up with. And so in one draft, I did get Castillo and tried to mix it up and then came back with something like a Michael Harris so I could get power and speed in the third round. Yeah, I've, I had Michael Harris targeted and he was he was just there for, for me to grab and instead I grabbed Marcus Semyon at the very last minute. I don't even know why I did it. But uh, yeah, probably not the uh, smoothest move. Although there's nothing wrong with Marcus Semyon. I love Semyon's plate appearances. Like he consistently plays all the time and that lineup's going to be good. But Simeon's great. He's definitely a lot less risk than Harris. Anyhow, let's get on to uh, baseballhq.com. Uh, have you looked at the site? What do you think of the new site? Oh, it's, it looks great. What do you What do you think? Yeah, it does. It looks great, and uh, the, a lot of the functionality behind the scenes looks like they've got all that worked out. I actually posted a story the other day for the first time, and it worked really well. Uh, this year, you're going to have two responsibilities as an analyst at BaseballHQ.com. And the first one is regularly writing the Arsenal Report. And before we go on and talk about it, what is it? Arsenal Report investigates starting pitchers, pitch mix or Arsenal, if you will. Corbin Young and I split the column. So we write every week, but we'll split two columns a month. And we try to examine just a pitcher's pitch mix, but if the changes are helping or hurting results and chances for better results. Where do you get the data? Baseball Savant, Brooks, Fangraphs, our site. When does the feature reappear on Baseball HQ this season? May through this August. We like to wait out April, see which pitchers make changes to their arsenal. It strikes me that it must be a little bit difficult to keep track of changes. I know it it's fairly straightforward to get the pitch mix as it sits in a snapshot version from all, all those sites you mentioned. But how do you guys keep track of that's a change? The, uh, the pitch mix has changed and over what time period does it have to change? I, I'm just curious how you guys assemble that data or are, are alerted to it or triggered to it. There are a lot of different methods how we can alert ourselves. I watch too many games Probably so, uh, especially being here in San Diego and being with the Padres, I noticed that even uh, Snell and Musgrove were reducing their slider usage just early on in their April start. So just monitoring pitchers and just watching each each start best I can, but also looking at Savant and looking at pitch mix changes. And then also we check X and different different uh, social media access to see like which pitchers are adding new pitches and which ones are subtracting or trying to change their pitch mix going into the season. So that information on X or Twitter is, or social media in general is coming from individual analysts who say, Hey, I just noticed something. Yeah. How do you pick which individual pitchers you want to analyze for the, for the articles? I look for pretty extreme changes, like you're saying. And it, cause I want to see if the, it's actually helping or hurting their results. Like, especially dig into the just simple things like a K percentage or walk percentage or even ground ball percentage, or maybe it's a platoon situation. Like, is it helping versus left-handed hitters or right-handed hitters? They're just adding this pitch uh, or just, are they trying to create more chase chases with their pitch? Like when I looked at Logan, Logan Gilbert's split finger fastball, he added last year and it obviously induced more swings and misses and he was just throwing it just out of the zone, just slightly below the zone. Do you use, 
any of the advanced stats like uh, Eno Saris's stuff plus, pitching plus, those kinds of things? Sometimes we'll, I'll use stuff plus. I try to stick to more of the savant stats. And so that have it broken out by pitch by pitch. But I like Eno's stuff plus as well as far as, especially when you're working in a small sample size, as he's talked about, that works better. When you're looking at three or four starts, you can actually see how the whiffs are generated. When we're talking about what the pitcher is doing, our our natural inclination is to think about pitch movement. But what about location? Are you also watching for the the way that a pitcher is locating his pitches to right-handers to left-handers in general? For sure, definitely looking at that. The heat maps on baseball savant, I find the most helpful. If uh, if listeners want to go on Illustrator, you can look at someone's heat map. They have a general heat map on the landing page of Savant, and then you can break it up by platoon splits, which hitters are facing and and see where their their hot zones and cold zones are on those hitters. In a report last season on Toronto right-hander Jose Barrios, you noted, and I'm quoting here, his four-seam fastballs expected stats are the worst performing in his arsenal. Unfortunately, the sinker's expected stats are the second worst. <laughs> and at the time, he was still throwing those pitches a lot. So why is it that analysts like you and Eno and all of these people can identify these problem pitches for the pitchers, the ineffective pitches for the pitchers, and yet the pitchers themselves and their pitching coaches don't seem to be picking up the thread? I would like to see him throw Barrios throws change up more. It seemed to have effect. Obviously, uh, he'd want he'd want to throw it to left-handed hitters, keep it outside and away from them. Um, but I'm guessing that he's comfortable with the four seam and sinker, and obviously he's a sinker first approach. But I I was looking at the counts yesterday, and he just I think he likes to throw him for early strikes, just trying to get ahead ahead of the hitter and hoping hoping they're not swings for for the first pitch. Because uh, he throws six, 61% either sinker or four seam at the beginning of the count. Um, the problem is when I was looking at the heat map, he leaves the sinkers and the four seamers too much in the middle of the zone. That's when they get scored up, and probably that's why the expected stats are not as good. Um, but he's had success against left-handed hitters with his four seam fastball. When he does keep it on the outer third, like you're saying, so going back to location, it does really matter. If he, if he could just keep it out there. And uh, like I said, his changeup – he increased his changeup last year from 13% to almost 19%, uh, which is a positive sign because it had the an 18% swing and strike rate and a 42% ground ball. So I'd like to see if he could maybe up that changeup usage somewhere in the low 20s. Okay, so we're just starting spring training. Pitchers and catchers are reporting. How much weight are you going to put on pitch mix changes and location changes and all of these kinds of things that you monitor during spring training with the expectation that they will or won't find their way into what happens once the uh, opening day hits? I usually just document in my phone all the new pitches that I see that pitchers introduce. And that way, do they keep those new pitches or do they not? And then monitor that through March and then into the season, April, see if, see if they're just dabbling with a new pitch or they're actually going to continue it. How long into the regular season would you start to adjust your thinking on the pitcher based on, yeah, this is for real. He's doing something. He was doing something in spring training. It has carried over. I'm convinced that this is for real, and now this is the new pitcher for better or worse. Well, as you know, we got to act quickly these days because everybody wants to look at stuff plus and 
I would go probably four to five starts. I mean, no longer than a month to April because so many fantasy guys will, will want to jump on before they're, even if the results don't improve, they're expecting the results. They see the same thing that we see. So they're expecting, Hey, this, it is a difference. The results just haven't changed yet. So the expectation is that any change is a good change. Not necessarily, but um, maybe for a two pitch pitcher, just add a third pitch to the mix just to keep hitters a little more off balance. When we as consumers or just fans are watching these kind of things, and you mentioned two pitch pitchers, what kind of third pitch do they add that's the most effective? Depends, I guess, on platoon splits like I was talking about before. Um, if you're trying to go low in the zone, maybe a split finger fastball seems to be the popular uh, idea this winter that more pitchers are looking maybe adding a split finger to their arsenal but once again if the pitcher doesn't have good control like nick pollock's mentioned it's not necessarily going to be a good thing <laughs> right a pitcher already walks a lot of guys split fingers not going to really help you you need something more that you can keep in the zone instead of trying to keep it just out of the zone and low yeah easier said than done i i, I expect at a certain place in a pitcher's development you'd think that he probably knows what he needs to do, but knowing what I need to do and doing what I need to do are often greatly different things. That's a fantastic point. Uh, I'd say maybe in some ways, yeah, just keep it simple, right? I read uh, different pitchers you read here, pitchers who go to driveline or whatever. It's, I know Shane Bieber was at driveline this winter trying to get his velocity back up. But even with pitchers like control, I remember the Rays told Tyler Glass now, like, hey, we're not even going to give you a location. Just throw it in the zone somewhere. <laughs> keep it that keep it that broad and keep it simple. And it, and it worked with the guy like his stuff. So Right. That's the thing. If you've got that kind of stuff, just throw it down the middle and let it wander off wherever it wants to. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Brant Chasser, analyst and writer at BaseballHQ.com. And and Brant, in addition to the Arsenal Report, you're one of HQ's Facts and Flukes analysts. How long have you been doing Facts and Flukes coverage? I've been covering Facts and Flukes since 2017 for the site. How'd you get into it? I covered the AL for three or four seasons. And then since I've been in San Diego since 2017 as well, I want to move to the NL. So Greg Pyron and I cover the NL. How do you think Facts and Flukes coverage helps fantasy managers? What are you trying to accomplish for fantasy managers? Like the title says, really just trying to determine if a player's performance is worthy of a pickup, i.e. Fa fact, right? So we look at a lot of hot starts, cold starts, these extreme issues, or, or a player, is there some kind of injury underneath? I was thinking about Xander Bogarts and his wrist the couple past years, and then like, is it zapping some of his power? It's hard to get since we don't have locker room access, but just trying to look at his power metrics and, and data and just trying to determine is it worth a pickup? Is he going to be the player he was before or is, has the player changed and like may, maybe our evaluation of him has dropped? I asked you earlier how you choose which pitchers to cover on the uh, Arsenal report. How do you choose which players you want to analyze for facts and flukes? Steven Nickran is in charge of our facts and flukes schedule. And so we have a Google sheet and we'll, we'll put the players on there, but usually he doesn't want the last 70 or 90 days to cover the same players, obviously. And then uh, Greg and I will, will determine to alternate, but we'll look at players either from the last 30 days tab 
either on our side or fan graphs. Uh, we're, we're also throw it out there on X. We'll take uh, reader suggestions. And then Ray and Brent also have suggestions too. Now that we're using Slack as a team, they'll throw one or two names. Hey, well, can someone cover player X? Like, sure, we'll cover them. I imagine when Ray or Brent says, somebody cover player X, player X probably ends up getting covered. Uh, sure. In your January 31st facts and flukes, you looked at five national leaguers. It's always five, right? Yes. The five national leaguers, uh, starting Atlanta second baseman Ozzie Albies was one of them. You gave him a pretty strong recommendation, despite a couple of key metrics being average or worse. 8.2% uh, barrel rate was like 48th percentile on Savant. Uh, sprint speed was around 54th percentile, so league average, basically. Why the strong recommendation on Albies, given these underlying skills, mm, averageness? Strong recommendation going to the HQ projection, kind of, I think we had him projected as a 26 or $27 player, but I haven't taken him in any of the early second rounds where he was going. I don't like the roster construction like you were talking earlier, but on the positives, three out of the last four seasons, Albies has put up at least 658 plate appearances. So he's an accumulator, the top of a strong lineup. His 28 expected home runs from the 2024 baseball forecaster and fly ball metrics. He had 323 feet on fly balls with almost a 93 mile an hour exit velocity on fly balls. He gets around and pulls it if he's going to hit it homer. So he's got at least mid 20s home run power, even with that meh barrel percentage you mentioned. Uh, but he continues to show obviously more power versus left hander left-handed pitching, the right-handed pitching. So fantasy managers can count on him for four, four and a half category contributions, depending on what you think of his steals. I wouldn't go more than 10, like you're saying with that, with the sprint speed. Uh, but depends on roster construction. Once again, I'm looking for a little more power, a little more speed at that place early in the second round. But that's just my roster construction. Some people think second base is scarce and they would rather fill that with him or Simeon. So be it, right? If they, they, they think they can get power speed in the later rounds, then I think it makes sense. So that's why qualified at the end, like depending on how you're building your roster, he may fit. Yeah, I thought the second base scarcity aspect of things might be explaining why Albies goes as early as he does, because frankly, I don't see it. There's, there's other players, non-second base players in that range. I'd way rather have Michael Harris than Ozzy Albies, just because I think the stolen base upside is really quite high, relatively speaking. I wouldn't be surprised if Harris steals 30 or 35 bases this year, and I'd be really shocked if Albie steals 15. All other things equal, and I think they're going to be fairly close in all the other stats, so I don't understand why the love for Aussie Albies. I understand scarcity, but I also understand you can't let scarcity be the boss of just acquiring stats. You know, uh, I know that there's a price to pay later on if you don't get a second baseman and then you get stuck with somebody down a little bit down the list. But uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I'm not a big Ozzy Albies fan. Uh, I am a big U Darvish fan. I got him in the 11th round of a draft I was in recently. And from your analysis and facts and flukes, I'm glad I got you Darvish. Why your solid opinion on Darvish? I know what mine was, but what's yours? Uh, career skills, he's got a 137 BPV. Uh, with so many pitches, like his career swing and K and K percentage expect a small rebound and strikeouts. And his ability just to throw consistent strikes in his 1.13 career whip, even with his age and his grade D health grade, when he's on the mound, 
he should provide strong ratios and some expected strand percentage regression could help us ERA finish in the high threes or near as 3.95 expected ERA last year. So with three seasons of at least 166 innings pitch in the last four seasons, I think there's plenty of room for profit potential at his 212.80p, which hopefully you got him somewhere near there. And yeah, it's great value. Once again, betting on the health and the age, the, the, the income or the aging curve. But I think you Darvish is, especially around pick 200, some guy who can give you 160 innings, 170, it's becoming more rare around that pick. So when's your next Facts and Flukes coming out? Uh, next Facts and Flukes should be out this Tuesday at BaseballHQ.com. Who you covered? Tyro Estrada will be the headline picture. And if we're talking about speed, he's going to give you a lot more speed than Albies. Uh, we're, we're looking like 25 to 30 stolen bases, yeah. Does he not have a multiple position eligibility as well? No, he does, uh, which is even better in draft yeah. champions league. So you get the second base and shortstop or middle. Yeah, I, I like Tyro Estrada a lot. Uh, do you know all five of your players for this coming Yes. Up? Who else? Braxton Garrett, who I talked about before. Jamison Tyon, which is kind of a disappointment. But he's going after pick 300. Looked at Sean Murphy for Atlanta because he had a second half kind of fall off last year. But he's got extreme power. Um, so I like Murphy a lot. And then I also looked at Orlando Arcia. So he's post 300 as well. So try to look at two down, two guys down the board. So Arcia and, and Tyon, obviously, at that pick, even though Arcia slated hit ninth, and we were talking about Harrison Albies before, maybe I think people like Albies more, but just because he's hitting the top of the order. But like you were saying, with Harris's skills, I could see him moving up. Like most people are down on Harris because they think they're going to hit somewhere between sixth, seventh, or eighth in the lineup. Right. So he's not going to get the plate appearances. So same thing with Arcia. Arcia does seem to be stuck at the bottom of the, yeah. of the lineup. But as far as accumulator and a bench guy at that at that spot, like I think he's got the skills to do it again, 17 to 20 homers. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him score a lot of runs because when they roll that lineup over, it, it's like he's got very many chances to get driven in, assuming he can get on base with any kind of regularity. Exactly. That's a great point. Cunha and all the rest of the top of the lineup can hit him in, Olsen, Riley. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Brent, I, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. I'll be watching your content all year long at BaseballHQ.com, the Arsenal Report, and Facts and Flukes. And I uh, hope we'll talk to you again during the season. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. It's been an honor and pleasure talking with you. Brant Chasser is an Arsenal Report and Facts and Flukes analyst at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2024 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this first Two Tout Tuesday edition. Todd Zola for Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and SiriusXM, and Brant Chasser, the Arsenal Report and Facts and Flukes Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. We got two ends of the guest spectrum on this edition. Todd, of course, has been appearing on Baseball HQ Radio since we started recording it on cassette tape, and Brant is a first-timer on the pod, and both Todd and Brant did a terrific job. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I did an okay job myself. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. 
You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available and not much else. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, the ATC Projection Valuation Systems, and Ryan Bloomfield, Speculator Columnist at BaseballHQ.com. That's Ariel Cohen and Ryan Bloomfield on this Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.